I think Ubudarakita's talk must have prompted a lot of investigation, <laughs> because there were many questions about anatta or selflessness. So I'll try going through a lot. Um, I'll read a few of them together and kind of uh, try to answer them you know, as, as a group. This question is about the concept of anatta or no-self. At times I have seen, seen things, I have seen through this small self and felt a lot of relief and joy but I still feel most strongly that I have an I when I make a serious decision or use my will to accomplish something. If there is no self, who or what is it that owns their karma, that chooses positive action or actions that lead to more suffering? The act of choice or decision seems to imply an independent I. The talk on anatta, or proof of no self, was stated was stated to be our lack of control of our own processes. This has repeatedly been alluded to by statements like, things arise according to causes, conditions, not our will. On the other hand, we have been told karma is caused by intentional actions and told that intentions are very important because they will result in future causes and conditions. Therefore, we need to choose consciously. My questions, if everything is impersonal, that is not under our control, is an intention also conditional? If so, does free will exist? Doesn't the foundation of intention require a set of conditions to arise? Direct observation tells me we do have a range of choice, not absolute, but not insignificant either. Doesn't this ability to direct experience volitionally disprove anatta as an absolute truth? (laughs) It is taught that all that is is the interplay of mind-body, nama-rupa. At death, when this interplay comes to an end, what exactly is it that is being reborn? There's no I or self who or what dies and is reborn. How do we know this cycle of rebirth is true? The Buddha said, see for yourself, but we aren't able to do so with rebirth. No one I know has knowledge of previous lives. Do you? (laughs) How does karma get from one minute one minute to next, if everything is arising and passing and not lurking somewhere. (laughs) Where does karma hang out if there is no self or continuous process, moment to moment? (laughs) Instead of answering the questions, I'm going to just read them. (laughs) Sort of like, you know, previews. Okay, why don't I start just with these and... I'll speak a little louder. I think it's a mistake to try to frame the understanding of karma and anatta and choice within the terms of free will or determinism, which is a classic philosophical problem that has been discussed for thousands of years. And I remember very clearly in college grappling with this and arguing this these all-night philosophical sessions. And if I couldn't do it as a freshman in college, (laughs) probably can't be done. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think that for some reason the, the concepts, in a way the question is framed, it's framed incorrectly. And so I don't think that's a useful way of seeing it. I think it's possible to understand things as being conditioned, that is, arising out of causes, but not being predetermined. I think it's possible to understand this process of conditioning without the sense of a fatalistic determination. The intentions that arise in the mind, or the choices that arise in the mind, arise because of particular conditions. They're not happening haphazardly, they're not happening accidentally. And so in that sense, the intention, or the choice, does not belong to anyone. That's the sense in which it is said that it is selfless that there's no one behind it who's making the decision. Rather, the decision or the choice is arising out of particular conditions. For example, the decision to come here on retreat. Decision came from some quality, some factor of faith in the mind. It's because of a certain confidence of faith that was one of probably many contributing factors that led to the decision to come. What inspired faith? Probably at some point, hearing something about the teachings, putting forth the effort to actually practice the teachings. So hearing an effort, some of the conditions, again, out of very many, that condition faith. Faith conditions choice, choice conditions coming. And so there's this cause and effect process, of course much more complex, because there are many more conditions involved. But in all of this, it is this play of elements of mind and body that are not referring back to anyone. It's not that someone is holding the decision or someone is making the decision. Rather, out of the conditions, certain results happen, certain choices happen. Out of the choices, out of the intentions, certain actions happen. How does karma fit into this process of impermanent change? Who's holding the karma? Who is it happening to? You know, if things are just arising and passing away, where is the karma held? a few different uh, metaphors which might explain different aspects of it. One of the things that's observed in the practice is the arising and passing of phenomena. See a thought, a sensation, a sound, an image. You know, over and over again we see phenomena, we, we experience it as arising and passing, arising and passing. But each of these moments is related to the moments which surround it. It's not unrelated. And that's why there is a process of continuity. As an example, now if you imprint in a piece of wax, you imprint a seal in a piece of wax, then you take the seal away. There's nothing carried over from the seal to the wax. There's nothing permanent that is carried from moment to moment, and yet the seal imprints the wax. And so in the same way, each moment is imprinting the next, imprinting the next, imprinting the next. But it's not a, it's not a result of something solid or static or steady or unchanging which is carrying it, or which goes from moment to moment. So it's very possible, and we see this, you know, as our 
as the practice and as the mind gets clear in understanding how this process is changing from moment to moment. A simple example. The intention arises to stand or to move. Because of the intention, then the body moves. There's nothing in the intention which carries. There's nothing steady, there's nothing permanent. Because of this, this happens. This moment imprints the next, imprints the next. And so karma unfolding, another example. When you strike a match and a flame comes, is the flame waiting someplace? It's not that the flame is in this other dimension and it's just waiting to be called, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's, what do they call it on Star Trek, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> right, beamed up, <laughs> thank you. It's not that the flame is beamed down. <laughs> The flame is not waiting any place. And so it's not to think that karma is in this realm waiting. Rather, there's potentials in conditions. When conditions come together, the potential has the power to actualize in a certain experience. Given the match, given the thing you strike it against, given the friction, given a certain level of heat, we get fire, we get flame. And so it's in exactly the same way an action, an action is done. And it's not that it's in some realm waiting. It's not that that karma is waiting someplace. Rather, the potential is there. Given conditions, given certain conditions, that potential actualizes. There's no one behind any of it. Certain actions create certain potentials, given certain conditions, bring certain results. A common question you know, is, who is it that's reborn? Who is it that goes from life to life? A very easy way to answer that, to see for oneself, is to see who is it that goes from moment to moment. When we see who goes from moment to moment, we know who goes from life to life because it's the same process. And just as consciousness is arising and passing, arising and passing each moment, death consciousness, rebirth consciousness. In just the same way it's happening within a lifetime, it goes from life to life. And this is one of the great discoveries that we can make because we don't need to have any great psychic power or special power of mind to see next lives or past lives, to understand how the process is happening because it's happening in just the same way right now. And so, so much of what we're doing in the practice and mindfulness is just this process of discovery of how it's working, of how it's happening. Now, in the early stages of the practice, and as I've said before, early can extend over 15 years. <laughs> but in the early stages, there's a lot of interest and a lot of sort of discovery and opening to the particular content, you know, and really learning to accept the whole range of what's going on all the different feelings and emotions and pains and sensations and different kinds of energy. But at some point, the content, the particular things, we've done the work of accepting. You know, we're really quite balanced with whatever is arising. Mind's not so reactive, not so caught. And so it becomes more interesting then to really be focusing on how things are arising and passing. And we see first the objects itself arising, passing, 
as the mind gets more subtle, we see how the consciousness which knows it is arising and passing. And so there's a very direct experience of this process of life and death right in the moment. We really see it. The Buddha talked about this process as a process of becoming. And I think it's, of course, he didn't use that word since it's in English, but it's quite a good word, I think, to describe, to describe this mysterious thing, you know, which we call living, which we call life. Because we see as we're observing for ourselves, not as a question of belief, but just as we drop back, as we settle into our own experience, we see that it's this becoming this, becoming this, becoming this, becoming this, and that there is no static, no unchanging foundation or substratum. One of the meanings of anatta is the sense of insubstantiality in each moment because it's experience coming together because of conditions, passing away, becoming or reforming into something else, into something else, into something else. So it's really this stream, this continual stream of experience. It doesn't mean that it's happening chaotically or that it's happening... Selflessness doesn't mean that there's no law, there's no order to it. It is very ordered, which is why we can recognize patterns. And we have a sense of continuity. The continuity is there. It's just a, it's a continuity of change according to law rather than some unchanging being to whom things happen. We are this process of change. I have always heard there is a higher self and a lower self. Now I've learned there is no self. <laughs> Can you discuss the difference between the self or I and the ego, which remains when emptiness or selflessness is realized? It is stated in one of the talks that anatta, a state of realization, and egolessness, a state that can lead to psychosis, are fortunately not the same thing. Please say more about this, as I have sometimes felt a fear of disorientation when I experience I as greatly diminished. Can you talk about the elements which form the composite ego? How do we balance a nata, no self, with the relative everyday self of worldly affairs? The Tibetans don't seem to have that problem. Okay, higher self, lower self, no self. And sort of the difference between egolessness and selflessness. In Buddhist teachings, there's not much talk of higher self and lower self. That's not, that's not a usual way that things are put. But I think the meaning of those phrases really has to do with, you could call them wholesome and unwholesome mind states. Now, when the mind is, um, when the mind is filled with the wholesome mind states of wisdom, of love, of compassion, of all the paramis, all the beautiful states of mind, one could call that higher self because it's onward leading. It's leading to happiness, it's leading to freedom, it's leading to enlightenment. When the mind is filled with the unwholesome mind states of greed, of hatred, of delusion, of fear, of jealousy, of envy, all of those things which are, which are rooted in wrong view of self, of I, one could call that lower self because they're downward leading. They're leading to more suffering. So I think that's a more precise way of understanding exactly what it is that's going on. 
but both this higher self or the positive mind states and lower self of the unwholesome mind states all equally are selfless. And this is really the revolutionary understanding of the Buddha. That each one is conditioning a particular result. Again, they're not owned by anyone. They're not connected to anyone. They're not rooted to anyone. Rather, what we are is this concatenation of different elements. Just these different elements coming together, changing, passing away, becoming. The problem with selflessness and egolessness arises because the, the terms are used differently in Buddhism and in Western psychology. And so that's what gets confusing for people. Because in Western psychology, there's a lot of talk about ego strength and ego boundaries and developing a strong ego. That's all fine. Translated into Buddhist terminology, what that is referring to is strong balance of factors of mind. That these factors of mind are in balance. And so there's a basic health of mind. When they're not in balance, for example, one of the things that gets way out of balance when people are mentally ill the identification process becomes so strong, there's no distance, there's no space in the mind from what's arising. Just imagine if you totally believed yourself to be every thought and emotion that arose, every single one. The inside meditation, the inside mental hospital. <laughs> I mean, that's what it would be because we all have crazy things going on in our minds at different times. But it's not the thing itself that makes us crazy. When there's space, when we can just watch what's happening, and there's not that compulsive, strong, obsessive identification with each arising thought or feeling or image then it's no problem. Whatever it is that's arising, it's okay. We can just see it and we can watch it come and go and there's balance. That's where the real mental health is. It's in that quality of balance. And so from the Western point of view, we can say, yes, a strong ego is, is necessary meaning strong balance of mind, strong balance of factors. But all of it still remains selfless. That is, all of these factors are functioning in their own way. They are not referring back to anyone. There often is a disorientation. Now, we are so accustomed to being to living with this strong sense of self, of I. As the practice goes on and we get glimpses that things are not as solid, not as secure as we had imagined, it, it can get a little tense there for a while. <laughs> somebody, somebody came in an in interview today and was just mentioning you know, certain times in the practice where kind of lose the sense of the body. And there's no shape, there's no form to the body. Sometimes the sensations of the body, physical sensations, disappear entirely. It takes a little getting used to. <laughs> you know, and sort of a, a trust that when we need to get up and walk, <laughs> the solidity will be there. It always is. You know, and so there really doesn't have to be any fear at all about that. But it's a different level of perception. And we're really seeing things on a whole other level. 
where there is no solidity and there is no form and there is no shape. And so it takes, it takes just a little delicacy you know, and, and practice to become comfortable in that realm. There has been talk about the movement of the mind from death to rebirth with little, if any, memory of previous lifetimes. Yet many people who have near-death experiences relate the sight, guidance, or so on, of a deceased loved one. What's happening here? Wishful thinking? It's said that what often clouds the memory of previous lives is the whole birth process, you know, of being in a womb and uh, the, the, the real trauma of coming through the birth canal and being born. And that's so intense that it's very difficult for most people to remember previous life. It's said that beings who are born spontaneously which are beings both in the Deva realms, in the Brahma realms, they don't go through that process. They're just, you know, death consciousness. Oh, Deva land. You know, it's, it's kind of immediate. <laughs> Those beings who take spontaneous birth have the capacity, actually, to remember. As far as people seeing beings, um, I think a lot has to do, I think there, there could be a genuine um, vision of rebirth, of where the rebirth consciousness is going to take place. And again, depending on what realm that may happen to be, if it's a higher realm, there may be that connection, that memory. Um, there are people, this was one of the other questions, there are people as human beings, not through a particular meditative training, but just who through a series of circumstances happen to remember you know, their previous life. There are countless stories, and there's a professor at the University of Virginia who did a lot of research into these stories, trying to check them out as carefully as possible. He wrote this uh, book on Life after life. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's just interesting. It's interesting to, at least as, as Coleridge said, you know, sort of practice the willing suspension of disbelief. So that we're not blindly disbelieving the possibility, as well as not necessarily blindly believing it. But just. It's quite a foreign idea to our Western culture. There is a fair amount of evidence, you know, when one goes to look. And so it's just to keep an open mind. We mentioned to you, I think I mentioned before, the Sri Lankan boy. Uh Somebody asked me whether I knew somebody who actually remembered past lives. We know this quite amazing story of Now he's a young man, he's about 20 or 21. Uh, We knew him when he was quite young, he's born in Sri Lanka. From about the age of one and a half or two, he started chanting in Pali long, long suttas, you know, and chapters of the Abhidham and very complicated things. (laughs) And he was actually doing it in a dialect that had in a, or a dialect of Pali, or a, a certain accent, rhythm of chanting, that has not even commonly done in Sri Lanka anymore. We have tapes. Maybe we'll, we'll play the tape uh, one evening. It's quite amazing. You hear this young, young voice, you know, just chanting for hours, these suttas. He later on remembered that in a previous life, in, he was a monk in the time of Buddhaghosa, who wrote the Path of Purification, in a monastery in Sri Lanka, 
He remembered that life. He remembered the monastery. They were doing an archaeological dig at the monastery. So still, as a young boy, he took, he took people to the dig, and he said, you know, if you dig here, you're going to find the library. And if you dig here, you'll find this. They dug it, and everything was just as he said. So there's a lot of mystery. <laughs> you know, a lot of things that may be going on that we're not aware of. So it's good, I think, just to keep openness. You know, again, it's not a question, and I'm not suggesting that one necessarily take on a whole new set of beliefs. Just that there's an openness of mind to different possibilities. You have said that the conditions which lead to an emotional mind state can be seen as impersonal. And in this insight, it is possible to disidentify with the emotion. How can conditions which stir up such powerful emotions be impersonal? I understand the word impersonal to mean having nothing to do with one's own individual situation or personality. This is somewhat of a related one. Why does the mind cling on to being upset? Upsets are painful, yet the mind clings. What's the payoff? Why does the mind love drama and problems so much? For example, the popularity of afternoon and evening soap operas, our personal afternoon and evening soap operas. (laughs) In some way, the word impersonal is can be misunderstood because it doesn't mean cold or distant or detached or which are a lot of the connotations of impersonal. And we all know strong emotions happen, certain conditions arise, something happens, some situation. It touches some deep place of conditioning and there's strong anger, a strong sadness, a strong love. Or And very powerful emotions arise. Understanding that they're impersonal or not identifying with them does not mean that there's not a feeling of them and a very intense feeling, because there is. And we know that just having gone through them over and over and over again. Impersonal, again coming back to the understanding of anatta, means that we understand that this emotion, this feeling, arises because of certain conditions, is not permanent, Just think back to your last great emotion. (laughs) Where is it? You know, there's these very intense experiences. They come, they're felt strongly, and then they disappear. We know when when we reflect how impermanent, how insubstantial they are in that regard. It doesn't mean that they're not felt. It does mean that they don't belong to someone. I don't know whether you can see this. It's sort of a visual representation. Mostly we think of everything coming like this. Thoughts, emotions, feelings, sound, all back to me. I'm feeling. I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling sad. I'm seeing, I'm hearing. It's everything back to I. The way of understanding, sort of the experience of anatta, 
is the same experience but going like this rather than this. There's anger, there's sadness, there's a thought, there's a feeling. We don't have to claim it. We don't have to identify with it because the identification is a whole extra process. It's not in the emotion itself. The emotion is what it is. And there's the openness to the feeling of it. The claiming of it as being I or mine is extra. That's an extra thing that we do. So then the question is why? Which is the second question. Why do we cling to the melodramas? Why do we cling to suffering? I think we do it for two reasons. And there may be many more, but these were two that came to mind. I think one reason we become so identified with emotions and fear everything, you know, but, but particularly puzzling is why we become so identified with suffering, is that the mind doesn't know any better. It's just been doing this for countless lifetimes and mostly it doesn't have a clue as to how not to do it. You know, this is our habit, this is our conditioning. And so for normal people, of which we no longer fit in that category, It's, it's interesting. I just was home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and it's just sometimes so strange because the, this overwhelming conditioning of the mind is just to be caught in everything. You know, this, this strong identification with every thought, every feeling, every emotion. It takes really seeing the nature of the mind, the nature of experience, which is why it takes so much effort to break that habit, to see that there's another possibility, that we don't have to be attached to suffering. And I've really seen this in my, in my experience over the years of practice. I've seen it outside of practice. When something happens, and there have been a few things recently where I've had another chance to practice. Something happens, some situation outside, and there's, you know, there's some real suffering going on about something. It's just so interesting for me to watch my response to that now as opposed to years ago. Because now when that happens, there is the very clear understanding that there is an alternative to suffering. I don't have to be caught. You know, there, there may be an initial glitch, an initial getting caught up. I love those moments. <laughs> you know, because the Four Noble Truths are right there. The, the teaching is so alive at that time it's not theoretical. There's suffering <laughs> you know, right there. What are the causes? Attachment. It's so clear. There's a way out of it. How? By, being, by really being mindful, by investigating, by all the factors of enlightenment. You know, and just to see that we don't have to be attached to suffering. We don't have to be caught. We don't have to be identified. But it takes some real effort. It takes a real looking. So I think that's one reason people stay so caught. It's just that most people don't know there's an alternative. They take that to be the natural state. And that's why the Dharma is such, such a precious gift, you know, in our own lives and in the lives of others, because it's really opening up a new possibility of letting go of suffering.
The Buddha's bottom line over and over again says, what does he teach? He teaches suffering and the end of suffering. That's the freedom that's really possible for us. I think there's another reason people cling to suffering. And that is because I think many people are intensity junkies. You know, it's like there's a feeling of being alive, you know, raging with anger or jealousy or whatever. You know, but this energy is powerful and there's not much sloth and torpor at that time. You know, there's a certain power and the power makes us feel good in a certain kind of way. What gets missed, though, it's like it's going in exactly the opposite direction. Because that same power, that same feeling of aliveness, of vitality, of energy, comes about, can come about not from exaggerating the intensity of the emotion, which is one way, but it's a way which involves a lot of suffering. But instead of exaggerating the experience in order to feel it more fully and more completely, what we're doing in the practice is refining the awareness, letting the mind become quiet enough and subtle enough to feel the power and energy and aliveness of the much more subtle energies that are always present. You know, this whole mind-body process is this amazing energy system. And actually, as we quiet down, we begin to open up to the vitality of this, of this process. Things don't need to be exaggerated in order to feel alive, in order to feel vital. It's one of the reasons why, as the practice goes on, One of, really one of the beginning of, of the hindrances, you know, which, which do linger around for some time. But one of the ones that seems to go relatively soon, relative to the others, is boredom. And when people are first beginning, this is so boring. You know, it's just this... It's really deadly when people come to retreat the first time. And it's... But with some development of stillness and calm and mindfulness and attention, it's quite amazing how that factor gets weaker and weaker. And it still may come from time to time, but much, much less. Because the interest is there on a much more subtle level. We don't need to cling to suffering we don't need to cling to exaggerated dramas in our lives in order to know that we're awake. So I think, I think that both of these things are happening. I've been noticing the force of desire in almost every decision I make, from small things like what to have for dinner to larger things like partner, profession, choice of spiritual path. If the force of desire drops away, on what basis, aside from obvious ethical considerations, are decisions made or choices chosen? Since practicing so much metta, I've had these tremendous urges to perform generous acts. Some I've acted out. I've sent off money to needy friends and family, given away all my Thanksgiving cookies. Some of these fits of giving I've started to regret. I don't have any money. 
I borrowed it to come here. <laughs> and every afternoon, I wish I had those cookies. <laughs> Are there guidelines to performing these acts? Can you comment on this? In practicing metta and compassion, there comes sometimes a time to say no or to hit them with a stick like some Zen masters did. How do I know when to say no, especially when wisdom is not mature? Is there any guideline? It's really interesting to watch the evolution of questions over the, <laughs> over the course. With regard to the first one about desire seeming to be in every choice, I think it's in some way a question of language. Because in English, we use the word desire to cover a range of different mind states. Whereas in Pali, there are separate words for each of these states. In English, not all desires are unwholesome. Not all desires are greed. There is the desire of greed, of attachment, of clinging. There's also the desire, just that means motivation to do something. I want to do something. Our desire to do something. The Buddha's desire for enlightenment, our desire for practice. Now we use that word, but it doesn't mean greed. It's not that factor of clinging. This desire of motivation is actually an ethical, it, it's, it's ethically neutral, which means it can be associated with greed, it can be associated with wisdom, it can be associated with compassion, it can be associated with love. And so as we go through the different actions in our day and we say, I want to do this, I want to do that, it's really to look back at the motivation in the mind. That becomes the guideline, that becomes the reference point. And again, that's the reference point for the other questions as well. You know, we have an impulse to give. We really want to see the motivation in the mind. Is the motive pure? Or are we wanting something back? When, when do we say no? We're motivated, we have a feeling of compassion, of wanting to give, but for a whole variety of reasons, it might actually be skillful to say no in that situation. Maybe because it is not actually being helpful. Maybe because our motive is not pure. Now maybe there's, a, there's an underlying motive in that particular situation. There's an interesting place to explore, which is the boundary, the boundary line of our metta and compassion. You know, we all have, at different times, different capacities for generous act, or for loving act, or for compassionate act. What do we do when we're at the boundary? You know, we're tired, we don't have much energy, and somebody asks us for something. And we can see that place in the mind, there may be really a wanting to give, a wanting to do it, and also a place of not wanting to do it. That's an interesting place to work. And I think we can work in different ways. If we can see that there is a reluctance, you know, too tired, too burned out, too whatever, not enough money, I can't share anymore, whatever the particular limitation of the circumstance is. If we find ourselves at that limit, at that boundary, we see the reluctance, 
but underneath the reluctance, there is a genuine willingness to stretch. Okay, let me stretch here. Let me do it anyway. Then I think it's really good practice because that's how our capacities grow. But we may be at that boundary and there's some super ego tape going on in the mind. I should do this. But actually not feeling the willingness to stretch. You know, and feeling a certain resentment in the act of doing it. I think it would be much more skillful to say, I can't do this now. You know, I can't spend this extra time or I can't give this thing. Not now. Because actually all we, all we would be practicing at that time is a strong feeling of resentment because there's no willingness. There's no, there's no willingness to make that stretch. And so it's not that there's one action or another which is always appropriate. It comes back again and again to see what's going on in our hearts. What's the motivation? The Buddha talked about giving being purified in three ways. Actually, he talked about two different sets of three ways. <laughs> One of them is to take joy in the thought of generosity, to take joy in the act of it, and to take joy in the recollection of it. So if from practice of metta, you know, one feels very loving, one has the thought to give, one actually does it and feels joy in that time, Afterwards, if some thoughts of regret arise in the mind, be very watchful at that time. That would be a very good time to note. So as not to get identified, not to get, not to get caught in that particular thought, which is only a thought. I shouldn't have done it, it was too much, I want my cookies, whatever it is. Because the regret about the act of giving actually weakens the force of that act. And so the act should be surrounded by joy. Joy before, joy in the actual giving, joy afterwards. As other thoughts come up, just to really see them, note them, let them go. Not to be feeding them, not to get identified. I'd like to read this question because it's, it's I think, quite an uh, important point. Sharon is going to actually be talking about it tomorrow night. So I'll just read the question and leave it for her to discuss. When I did the equanimity meditation and phrased the sentence, all beings are owners of their karma, their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions and not upon my wishes. The image of one of the black African children, all skin and bones, arose, and I felt a big reluctance towards this meditation. There are real causes existing in this world for the suffering, for suffering, and I find it quite perverted to say it's just karma, and in consequence, maybe, what can I do? Didn't the Buddha speak of developing equanimity towards what happens to oneself and compassion and sympathetic joy for others? Are there other phrases? This is really quite key to understand. because it's often misunderstood exactly what this mind state of equanimity is. It's not indifference. And it has a very beautiful relationship to metta and compassion. And so, 
it's worth understanding deeply. But as I say, Sharon will, will address it tomorrow night. I'll just do one more. There was one more big batch of questions, and so I'll, I'd just like to address the theme briefly. There were a whole bunch of Enlightenment questions. <laughs> Can you please describe the experience we so often hear of becoming enlightened? For most of us today, it seems we have an ideal that makes it out of reach. In the stories of the time of the Buddha, people would get it in no more than seven days. <laughs> Why is this so? Can somebody who hasn't gone through all the stages of meditation practice get enlightened in a moment of insight and inspiration, so to speak? Please talk about entering the stream and the little stream. What falls away at each of the stages of enlightenment? And at what stage is there no more rebirth? Could you talk a little about openings, what they are, the various levels of understanding, etc.? Is there anything fundamentally different between enlightenment and Buddhism and the experiences of people like Rumi, Lao Tzu, Krishnamurti, Master Eckhart, and the Hindu sages like Ramana Maharshi? There are so many ways to talk about this. One of the most immediate ways, and I was just reading uh, this afternoon in, in one of the suttas, just this particular question, where somebody asked Sariputta, Nibbana, Nibbana, what is this Nibbana? And Sariputta said, the ending of greed, hatred, delusion is Nibbana. It's very concrete in that way. You know, it's very easy to understand, if not easy to accomplish. But then we can understand, with that as the framework for understanding Nibbana, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, we can put all of these enlightenment questions into a certain context. And that is that all along the path, we are getting enlightened. I was, last Sunday, I was um, at a, a day-long um, event at the Providence Zen Center. The abbot of the center and myself, we were doing a, a Zen Vipassana day. Um, and he, he, had, he had a nice thing to say about enlightenment. He said that it's easy to get enlightened. It's hard to stay enlightened. <laughs> and if we think of enlightenment really as the mind being free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Really to be watching the mind, you know, moment after moment, in a moment of mindfulness, of really clear awareness. Is the mind free of these factors or not? And then to watch the difference, so that we really see for ourselves what's the difference between when we are free in the moment, and then when again the mind gets caught by something. Because we see it over and over again. We have lots of moments of enlightenment and lots of moments of losing it. But we can get a very, we can get a taste. We can really see the possibility of a mind that is free, a mind that is free of kalesa, free of defilement. 
There are many kinds of open experiences along the way. So many kinds. You know, people come into interviews all the time with just certain experiences of accepting something that they had been struggling with. Could be, it could be in relationship to physical pain, it could be certain kind of emotion. You know, where the conditioning is to struggle, is to resist, is to have aversion, and then in a certain moment, the mind is free of the aversion, there's no struggle. In that moment, that's a kind of enlightenment, it's a kind of opening to something that's there, free of defilement. Somebody today came in and just described the experience of really being able to distinguish clearly the difference between unpleasant sensations and aversion. You know, because for so often in our lives, we, just, we automatically think that if something's unpleasant, we have to hate it. And to see that that's not so. To see, yeah, there can be unpleasantness and the mind can be free. The mind can be enlightened in that state. Non-aversion. In some way, more difficult is to be enlightened with pleasant experiences. You know, very pleasant, finally struggling with pain, pain, pain. All of a sudden, you know, the, the body is soft and light and tingle and rapture. And can we really be with it without any greed? without any attachment? Can we be enlightened in that moment? This, this really is what it is about. All of these kinds of openings freeing the mind from greed, from hatred, from delusion. What's called little stream entry. There is there's a particular stage in the practice because the three characteristics at that time are very, very clear. Of anicca, of dukkha, of anatta. And it sort of sets us in a direction. And there are a lot of other kinds of openings and insights. The defilements of greed and hatred and delusion are actually uprooted from the mind at these certain times in practice where we open to what is the unconditioned. That which is not nama rupa, that which is not this arising and passing away. The power of that moment is to actually uproot in various stages the power of these kilesas. And so I see enlightenment as this wide spectrum of experience. What makes it meaningful for us as we're going along in our practice, I see, is the moment-to-moment clarity of mind in which we can be with what's happening without attachment, without aversion, without identification. And so in that, sen- in that sense, we are really practicing enlightenment, moment to moment to moment. Why postpone it? Why create it as, that, as this distant goal when it actually is something which we can be practicing in each moment? There are a lot, lot more. I think I'll just read a couple of announcements to close. I mean, we could spend hours going through these questions, which. Uh, one, one request is uh, to please be careful about maintaining the silence. You know, these last weeks of the retreat, 
it's at this time of the retreat that people usually have a sense of how quickly the time goes. You know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of threshold going along, going along, that seems to stretch on forever. And then at a certain point, you know, there are a few weeks left and all of a sudden it seems so quick. And so these few weeks at the end are really precious. Take care with the silence, both for yourself, your own practice, and also out of respect for the other yogis. Really want to maintain the energy and the momentum right up until the very end. Um, in that regard also, uh, to please take care not to take notes or write in the meditation hall, because it's disturbing you know, if people are continuing their sittings. And the last one, we have now gone through all the yogis in assigning practice leaders. I've put up a sign sheet for the rest of the retreat. Could you please inform the yogis of this and encourage them to sign up? So please sign up. If uh, you don't sign up, <laughs> then we'll just uh, start the list at the top again. But it may be that some of you appreciate the great value of being practice leader. Uh, it's one of the great antidotes to sloth and torpor. <laughs> and, uh, it, it really helps keep people very alert. Just as a way of holding the practice, you know, of holding what we're doing here, please keep in mind that the purpose is not to get something, it's to understand. Because if you have in the mind a getting mentality, it's just as a setup for frustration and expectation and disappointment, and it's not what it's about. It's not to get something. It's really to understand the nature of this mind and body, of who we are. How do we understand? By careful looking, by careful observing. You've been working so hard to develop these tools of observation. The power of mindfulness, the power of concentration. You know? And it's just to, to hold that sense of what the practice is about, because that's what creates interest. Okay, what's happening now? What is, what is the nature you know, of a thought arising and passing, or a sensation, or a sound? How is it all happening? And the understanding that freedom or enlightenment is really in the moment. And as we work in that way, it really provides a lot of energy and a lot of inspiration. Thank you. Sorry we went over. I couldn't stop. <laughs>